Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Sam. So this week, firstly I'm back, hello, hope you all didn't miss me too much um, when Samantha didn't record with me. Um, that was really sad but I'm back. So this week I am actually taking us to England which I don't know if I've done an English case before but this oh has God, been... you've not. No I've not. So we're actually going to England this week um, which I hope is okay with everyone. I know that we mainly do Scottish ones but this one has been requested um, a couple of times actually from different people but one person's pretty persistent that they want us to do it so I'm going to do it. So this week I'm going to tell you about the disappearance and murder of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman most commonly known as the Soho murders. Okay, Samantha, have you heard of this case? I'm assuming so. Yes, I have. I actually have, which is a shock and <laughs> I'm, I'm very shocked. pleased. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a really, really well-known case, especially documentaries-wise. There's been so many things on it. and But there's actually a lot of information. As I was researching more, I actually found out quite a lot about everyone involved, so that's quite good. I'm also going to do a small update at the end on the Sheffield Bio case as well. Um, as everyone will know that's kind of underway so I'll give a small update on that if you want to listen to that at the end but let's begin with this week so as I said it's the disappearance and murder of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman but it is known as the Soham murders so I'm going to talk to you first a little bit about Soham so the best way you kind of describe Soham is like a small middle class English town which is kind of north of London and it's in like East Cambridgeshire in Cambridgeshire um trying to describe it, it the best way I'm going to describe it is it gives me like hot fuzz vibes like I don't know if you've ever seen hot fuzz but it's like one of those like really small kind of little English city like well town sorry it's got small shops like it's got takeaways and a population of 10,000 which actually isn't tiny but you can kind of get the vibe I'm trying to describe here like Soham actually didn't have its own police station at the time of this murder I don't know if it does now and like the town itself like some shops etc had CCTV but there was no like town CCTV if you know what I mean by that now the two girls I'm going to be talking about are Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman so Holly Wells lived with her parents who was Ian and Nicola Ian was a window cleaner had a window cleaner business in Soham and Nicola was a legal secretary she also had an older brother Oliver who was 12 at the time um holly's kind of known for being like the blonde one of the duo she has this beautiful blonde hair and she's quite a creative girl she enjoyed art writing music she could sing she liked being quite girly um she was grown up for her age and a smart girl and she came from a sociable family so she was pretty outgoing as well we also then have jessica and jessica lived at home with her parents leslie and sharon now leslie was an engineer and Sharon was a learning support teacher at a local school. And she actually had two older sisters who were 16 and 14, but I've tried and I can't find their names. Um, she was a well-behaved girl as well, quite mature, but unlike Holly, she was like a total like tomboy. Like she liked sports, footballs, women, like she didn't like looking girly. Um, she actually had a mobile phone as well, which I will mention later on, but she was really, really good for being contactable on that. Like her mum said that like whenever she was out, she would always message her mum on her mobile phone and she was quite a loud, bubbly girl. Now, these two girls met aged four in nursery and like instantly became like really good friends. Um, they had quite a lot of things in common, but the main thing towards their death was they were both big fans of David Beckham and then supported his team at the time, which was Manchester United. 
Now, the story starts here on Sunday, the 4th of August, 2002. And the Chapman family had just come back from a fortnight in Mallorca. So they'd been away for the summer. And obviously she wants to then go and see her friend, Holly. So Jessica goes round to Holly's house. And the Wells family were actually having a barbecue. So Jessica goes over and like gives her some gifts from her holiday, etc. And there's actually a photo of them that's kind of the most infamous photo of this case was taken at this event because Holly was wearing her Manchester United top and Jessica wanted to wear one as well. So actually borrowed Holly's brother's top. And that's where you see the photo of them in their Manchester United top. So they wore them for the rest of the barbecue. Now, while the barbecue's ongoing, they actually go out to the local shop and headed towards like the sports centre of the town. Um, and they went into the sports centre, used like a vending machine, then headed back out and headed through like the college car park. Now, it is a quiet evening. Like this is a Sunday night um, at like dinner time. So even though it's summer, like it's not going to be hustling and bustling the pubs, etc. Like even though schools weren't on, it's still like a Sunday night. Now, they're walking towards the caretaker's home on the way home, and unfortunately, the girls never returned home. Now, it started spitting with rain, so the Wells family moved the barbecue inside, and they carried on inside. And at roughly 8pm, their guests are leaving. So Nicola, Holly's mum, goes up to get the girls to say, like, come and say bye, etc., and notices that they're missing. And Holly had actually left her phone at home as well, which wasn't like Holly. So obviously, her mum has a bit of that, like, mild panic, but... They just waited until 8.30 because I think that was a common curfew time for the girls. So the dad's like, look, let's just wait. Like, they might be out, they'll return, etc. But obviously, 8.30, there is no sign of the girls. So Nicola ran the Chapman family and found out that they weren't there either. Um, they also called Jessica's mobile and that didn't ring at all. That actually went straight to voicemail, indicating that the phone had been turned off. So at 8.45, Kevin Wells, he obviously can't drink, so he gets on his bike and like cycles around Soham to have a look for the girls and he went out and checked like the high street the sports center the college kind of thing as I said like it is a small town so that is maybe a bonus in the looking for them because if someone goes missing in Edinburgh oh my goodness like there's so many places to look where as I've listed there he's checking the high street sports center that there's these key places he knows they'll go now Leslie Chapman is also out and he's driving and looking around as well asking people if they'd seen them but like nobody had like they called everyone that knew the girls like typical missing child things to do really but this is completely out of character for them they've never done anything like this before they've never not come home when they're meant to so at 10 p.m they finally call the police and this search starts pretty much automatically um, they helped search on foot, like called friends, etc. They accessed Jessica's phone records, but obviously due to the time, like I think maybe obviously this was 2002, um, etc. They basically said like it was last on near or in Soham, which really isn't any help whatsoever in this situation. But I know that back then it'd be much harder to kind of get information. And I think they obviously were going to look more into these records over time. Now, at 1am, PC Anna Burton got to Soham Village College and is like searching around there. And this is where she met the caretaker, who is Ian Huntley. And he basically took her round the grounds, went in, etc. They did the usual like missing girls things, where they're shouting their names, etc. Um, she obviously spoke to him about the missing girls. And Ian Huntley said he'd heard there was girls missing, but he hadn't seen them like around the grounds, etc. Now, there was a large shed kind of, I don't really know how to describe it, like a kind of shed 
metal shed, sorry, that was like used for gardening equipment, etc. So the PC asked to go in there, but he didn't have keys for it, unfortunately. So she did like a usual like tap on the door, shout their names, but there was nothing. So unfortunately, weren't able to search in there. Now, while also searching the grounds, teacher, a woman named Susan Hurl the next day, saw the caretaker and asked if like he had seen the girls, to which Ian Huntley says he had. But literally a few hours before, he said he hadn't. Um, he said he basically didn't make the connection to the two girls that had walked past his house earlier the night before at 6.30. Now, they stopped and asked about his girlfriend at the time, Maxine Carr, who was an old teaching assistant at that school. So this is all just a bit bizarre. So he actually goes to Ely, which is a local place, Eli, Ely, I think it is, um, which is near and tells the police. And he basically just like mumbles his story out, being like, sorry, I hadn't pinned the two together. Um, yes, like they did walk past my house asking for my girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. Now, I'm going to stop here and actually tell you a bit about this man more. So his name is Ian Kevin Huntley, and he was born on the 31st of January 1974 to parents Kevin and Linda. Now, his dad was an apprentice gas fitter and Linda was like an admin assistant kind of thing. Now, this was a completely unplanned pregnancy and his parents were 18 when they had him, which is fine. Like, But I think that was made clear like it was a complete shock to them. His dad was quite like stern and strict and quite like to the point with things like didn't let him away with stuff. And then in 1975, the couple also had another son called Wayne. Now, Ian was quite jealous of Wayne and would like act out when Wayne was getting attention. And this was like screaming and crying like he didn't sleep well. He was like a really difficult child to the stage where he got his own way easily because he would cause such a scene if he didn't. Um, he was also really needy for his mum's attention, which I think was then obviously heightened when his brother comes along and he's desperate for that attention that his mum's obviously having to give a newborn. At school, he was known as like a bit of a class loner. Um, so this bit, I'm really, really sorry. I don't mean to laugh, right? But he's not a nice person, so we can laugh. He had a big forehead, so unfortunately people at school would either call him Spadehead or the White Cliffs of Dover. It's <laughs> awful. He's not a nice person, so we can laugh. Um, he wasn't, like, violent at school. Like, he, he wasn't, like, he would be one of those that would, like, talk the talk and then people would go to, like, start a fight and he would, like, run and grass them into his teachers, which isn't doing him any favours at all. So he was pretty much bullied in high school. He used to get out of school, um, out of sports, sorry, by faking asthma attacks. And he actually transferred schools, but he was still isolated in the next place. Um, he wanted to become an RAF pilot, um, but unfortunately this never happened. So he ended up just being like a plane spotter, like one of those people that has binoculars and goes and watches planes, which obviously would be quite a downgrade for him, especially if he wanted to be a pilot and couldn't do that. Now, he saw himself as quite a powerful character, but, like, nobody around him really agreed, like, you know, as you can see. Um, and unfortunately, when he was at school, he actually attempted suicide on paracetamol, but his class believed he did it for attention, not actually to kill himself. He wasn't good around girls at all. He would actually go for girls younger than him. And I don't know if that's because he just didn't know how to deal with girls his age, but he kept making up lies about his life to, like, get girls. And then he would have to move around because his lies would, like, chase up with him. Now, when he was 18, he groomed a 12-year-old. Um, he actually gave her alcohol and then raped her. At 20 years old, he did the same to an 11-year-old. He met her at a fair and he basically took her back to his flat, like, kissed her, tried to rape her, but she actually screamed so much that he let her go. And 
he also did the same with a 16 year old and when she refused to have sex with him he kept her hostage for two weeks in his house um, keeping away food and water etc to the stage where she was hospitalized when found due to like extreme dehydration so bear in mind i've just told you all that and he's currently like a school caretaker now in 1994 he actually then went and worked in a factory and met an 18 year old called claire and they started going out and actually got married in January 1995, six months after meeting. Um, and then basically once they were married, like the honeymoon phase kind of stopped. And this is when he began like beating her. He just, he was horrific, horrific to her, sorry. He was just abusing her for months, months, months. And she actually left him after months of abuse. But one time when she was like trying to leave, he faked a seizure. So she stayed, got the paramedics and the paramedics obviously turned up and were like, the seizure's fake. So you can see what kind of like person he is like once like, you know, this even links back to school. Like he'll talk the talk and then when things get too much, he just fakes asthma attacks. He fakes seizures. He goes and tells teachers. Do you know what I mean? She then goes on, Claire, to divorce him and marry his younger brother, Wayne, which is a lot. That's a kick in the teeth for Ian. (laughs) I know if you've ever heard it. So I actually don't know if her and Wayne are still together. But yes, but anyway, he then gets a new girlfriend, Katie, who's 15. And she moves into his flat. She basically drops out of school. How old is Ian at this time? So Ian at this time, well, this would be 1994. And he was born in 1975. Right, okay. So he's almost, he's 19. So then, yes, it's a couple of years after. So he'll be about 25-ish, I'm guessing. 1994 and 1975. Yeah, but then this is a couple of years after oh, his yeah, marriage to yes. Claire. Sorry, so I'm assuming sorry. he's maybe like 22 or something. So still, yeah. this is way allowed. too old. Yeah. yeah, this is paedophilia. And she moves into his flat and drops out of school. And he was horrible to her as well. Beat her and everything like that as well. So this relationship obviously did not last. Now, he lived in Grimsby for a while and would basically go for like drunk women. Like he would basically like go out and just go for women that looked like they were drunk and basically couldn't say no to him and there was a night where he was out and he saw an 18 year old girl tried to chat up but she like declined this offer so he waited and when he saw her walking home alone that night he pulled her into an alleyway punched her threatened her and then brutally raped her now the girl escaped and called the police and basically Huntley turned himself in actually but he got out on bail and the case was unfortunately dropped now the police actually go to Ian's house we're just going back to well, forward sorry back to Soham at the moment and they go to his house the next day obviously to ask about this because yeah he's went to the police and said yeah sorry I did see the girl so they've obviously sent detectives around and he was freshly so- uh, showered looked like he hadn't slept when he was talking he was like sweating and like rubbing his hands together because they were obviously like really really sweaty he had clothes hanging out outside on the like um whirly gig thing but it was also raining so they were like why are you hanging your clothes outside when it's raining and the police at the time said the house smelled of like strong lemon cleaning products. Now, he said to the police, look, I really didn't put the two together. Like, I don't understand how you couldn't put two missing girls together when you'd seen two girls. But anyway, he said, I didn't put the two together until someone mentioned the Manchester United tops. And I remembered I saw the two girls wearing them. He said the reason they'd come round was to see Maxine Carr, who I mentioned earlier, who was like a support assistant, well, was a support assistant at their school. So Maxine Carr is Huntley's fiance at the time. And I'm just going to stop there again and tell you a bit about who she is. So Maxine Ann Carr was born to Alfred and Shirley and had an older sister called Haley. I actually can't find out 
more about like her family there's not really a lot going on but I think she was born in Grimsby as well she didn't have any involvement with her dad since age two I think he like up and left so she kind of just like cut him out after that she was well behaved at school she like different from Huntley quite quiet like she did well but unfortunately when she was at school she actually developed an eating disorder um she wanted to be a teacher and she wanted to be like appreciated and she wanted to do that but unfortunately she didn't get into university or college I don't know she just didn't get the grades I don't know if it's because she was unwell so she actually worked at a factory with her mum which is completely the opposite of what she wanted to do um Maxine was actually a big drinker so Maxine's just really quiet keeps to herself ghetto but then when she has a drink she goes like wild like she would flash people on nights out like she would sleep about um but then when she actually got partners, she was like a really jealous, like needy partner and would be really, really difficult to be with. She was absolutely terrified of rejection, which some people have said, like, does this maybe go back to her dad? Like, leaving? I think she's scared of being like left. And she basically was just an anxious girl who wanted someone to take care of her and devote like she wanted to devote her full life to somebody. Now, in the summer of 1998, she meets Ian Huntley in a nightclub. And they become an item pretty quickly and she moves in with Huntley. You can see this is a pattern that he does. He just moves girls in pretty quickly. Um, she felt she had a connection to him and Huntley and her basically distanced themselves from everybody else and just lived in this little like bubble, which I totally get that when you're in a new relationship, you are in like a little bubble, but cutting off like parents, friends is like a complete warning sign. And it's just like not okay at all. She had a really good relationship with her mum, but once getting with Huntley, like cut him off basically. And her mum was really concerned now they actually loved arguing with each other like they would throw things at each other etc and like their relationship thrived on arguments with each other he also cheated on her with a 15 year old now I don't know if that's the same 15 year old I don't know but I know he cheated on her with a 15 year old and she actually tried to kill herself so Huntley stayed with her because this like gave him the fright he needed or something but because he cheated on her she cheated on him and she went out and had like one night stands in Grimsby, in Grimsby etc when he had other girls so then Huntley left her and moved in with a 24 year old but then they got back together and they moved out and went to Scunthorpe I, I really hope you're keeping up because this is it's a lot they then got engaged but in order to buy the ring like Huntley had taken it alone but he then had debt issues so they basically had to keep moving around to like avoid these debt issues and then he heard of the job opening for a caretaker in some community college so that's when he applied for the job and they moved into the caretaker's house, which was five college close, and he became the caretaker at Soham Community College. Now, Maxine got a job at St Andrews Primary School, but basically wasn't offered a full-time position, which was a shame because she really liked the jobs. But from what I've read, she was much better with the students than she was with the staff. So I think she was like really good with the kids, but like not great at actually doing her job. Now, they were both known as like a friendly couple. They were like quite nice and happy. Um, like, do you know everything was fine they're like this engaged couple do you know Huntley as I said was working at the college and he was known as being like a quite cool caretaker because he was like younger but again he was a bit of a nightmare to the staff but like all the college girls liked him which is a bit of like a red flag now before I go on to tell you more and like I think most people listening to this already know how Maxine and Ian are involved but I just wanted to highlight something that I found out which really like gave me like chills is both Huntley and Maxine Carr had a connection to both the sets of parents of the children so Huntley obviously worked at the college and Kevin Wells had a, a contract for window cleaning the college windows and Sharon Chapman worked as a support teacher alongside Maxine Carr at the primary school so both of them knew the girls parents as well as the girls okay 
we're going to go back to the 4th of August now. Ian Huntley was home alone that weekend. So Maxine had went to Grimsby to see her mum. So obviously the girls had come round to see Maxine and she wasn't in. So off they go on their merry way. Now, he called her often as he didn't like her going home to Grimsby. Because also that's where she used to go out to the pubs and would cheat, etc. So there was quite a lot of like possessive text. Maxine didn't actually answer her phone on the Sunday and he was like absolutely furious that she didn't call him back. But she didn't call him back till like later that night because she was like, I'm hungover. I've been out on the Saturday night, blah, blah, blah. They had an argument on the phone and he made her feel bad for even going back to visit her mum. Now, the search efforts on Monday are obviously fully underway. Like the girls have been missing for, you know, under 24 hours at this point. So Huntley was helping and directing like the college ground search as obviously he is a caretaker so he has the keys he knows where everything is and it was a horrible day like it was proper raining and like due to the fact they were in like their Manchester United tops and shorts I think like this kind of gave a huge hint like if they were out somewhere just hiding they would have came back by now. Now the US Air Force is actually out searching as well and they do a full 16 hour search like the whole of Solomon is basically out looking for them. They've got the police dogs, they've got helicopters and of course, all the news crews start to arrive as basically two young middle class girls are missing, which doesn't happen, especially in Soham. The fact that like this is still known as like the Soham murder, I kind of think shows that this kind of thing does not happen in Soham. Now, later that day, which is a lot earlier than normal, the parents make their public appeal. Um, most people have seen it. Like they do the appeal sitting there. And on the Tuesday, David Beckham actually makes a public appeal as well, saying, you know, if anyone has them or if the girls are there, go home, let your family message you, etc. Now, two and a half thousand calls of inquiry come in and the police actually stop nearly a thousand cars and speak to a lot of people, a lot of door-to-doors and so on. And then Tuesday afternoon, about 4pm-ish, Huntley asked Maxine to come home as he admits to Maxine the girls had actually been inside their house. So, like, how is he getting his story so mixed up from like not seeing them seeing them and now they've been in the house so Maxine actually comes home well Ian goes and picks her up in Grimsby on the Wednesday and Maxine agrees to lie and be an alibi for him because she doesn't want him getting in trouble so he basically says look the girls came in looking for you they came in to have a chat then left nothing dodgy happened but I know if I tell the police have been in the house I'm going to look like a murder suspect so Maxine is obviously so in love with this man she's like yep yeah, cool so Maxine tells police that she'd actually been in the bath up the stairs and had actually been at home the full weekend so Huntley has an alibi done and the police are like that's fine do you mind if we still take like a DNA swab so Huntley gives a DNA swab but then also asks the police like how long does DNA last for like on something which even if you're innocent, don't ask these weird questions. We've spoken about this so many times when like people will Google like how to get rid of a body. And I'm like, don't do that. So don't ask the police how long your DNA is going to last on something. Just just don't do that. So on the Monday, Huntley had actually completely deep cleaned his house and had went to a garage in Eli and changed his tyres and actually paid the man at the garage more money to put a different registration down. He also completely deep cleaned his car and ripped out the carpet that was in the boot and replaced this. Now, obviously, the press began interviewing members of the community. Now, obviously, this is like the head teacher, the local vicar, etc. And obviously, this has now come out that Ian Huntley was one of the last people to see the girls. So obviously, so many interviews, those of press, like there's so many famous interviews of Ian Huntley as well. There's the one, obviously, when he speaks to Sky, etc. Like when he's standing like outside his house, like it just is like once you know the full story, it's horrendous. Now, Maxine Carr also appears on the TV and says how much she misses the girls. Like she shows like a picture that I think Holly had drawn her when she'd left the school. But Carr spends this whole interview referring to the girls in the past tense. But at this point, 
the girls aren't dead. The girls are missing. People are still alive. But Maxine, Maxine refers to them as like they were. So like, do, do you know what I mean by that, Samantha? Like, do you want me to explain like how that is? No, I get you. It's kind of like the McCann situation. Eh? The Madeline McCann. Like her parents always spoke about how, oh, she was this, she was that. And it's like, I'm sorry, yeah, man, they're yeah, just yeah. missing. All right, okay. I was like, I not like Madeline McCann. <laughs> no, so no, no, no. I was like, what? No, the past yeah. tense. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, Maxine says like, oh, they were such lovely girls. And it's like, no, they are such lovely girls. Do you know what I mean? So that also looks a bit... Mm. Huntley also asks the press if the girls' clothes have been found. But obviously, again, they're not meant to be dead, so the clothes are meant to be on their body. Like, Why is they, he asking these questions? Exactly. Like, going, he needs to be really, really... It's just ridiculous. Like, this is what I never get when people are involved or a suspect and they make these stupid mistakes of, like, saying to press, like, about my DNA, about that, like... <sighs> anyway, so two weeks later, they actually make a reenactment of the girls. Like, I think everyone has seen this, like, the route that they've taken... And no progress has been made, so they did this. But this obviously comes to so many false leads. Like, someone said they saw them outside of Eli. It wasn't them. Like, some people would say, like, oh, we saw, like, a, um, a man in a car. And he had two girls in the back of the car. And it would actually be their own kids, etc. But you get that people are wanting to help. But obviously, there were so many false leads that the police at the time actually asked um, all, like, kids not to wear Manchester United tops. And basically asked that they weren't worn anymore until the girls were found because anyone with a Manchester United talks people were like oh it's Holly and Jessica and of course like Manchester United was a really big team at that time so that's why they were just like no so this is when like the rumours start beginning people are saying like oh they actually met up with a paedophile from a chat room and were lured away there was like a house for reform like like forming paedophiles I think near in the area and someone said someone from there stole them so so many rumours are starting and I completely get where rumours come from people want to know what happened but these are so so dangerous because every time a rumour or a false lead came about the police had to investigate that which is taking time off the actual investigation do you know what I mean now on Tuesday the 13th of August a jogger actually says that he was in the town of Newmarket which is a town like south of Soham between 10 and 11 that night and he was just jogging past and he heard screams and saw freshly turned earth near the race course so, of course, a full search is organised and people thought, basically, this is it. Like, the whole of Soham were waiting. And, like, the parents, can you imagine, like, this is when they're allocated their family liaison officers or family liaison officers go round at night and are basically just sitting, waiting to see once their bodies are find, found. sorry. And this went on all night and nothing was found. It actually ended up being, like, a wee, like, badger, group of badgers or whatever, um, which is such horrendous emotions. Because at that time, you're like, do you actually, would you rather they were just found? Or would you rather they're still missing for like 10 days? So on Wednesday, the 14th of August, a detective appeals for the abductor to listen to the voicemails that they'd left on Jessica's phone so they can speak with them. But this phone was never turned on again, which I get why they're doing it as well, because the minute that phone's turned on, they'd be able to track the location of the phone. But whoever's probably got the girls or killed the girls at this time probably know that. So they're not going to turn on the phone. Do you know what I mean? Now, police have recently just found out that Ian was like investigated or charged or whatever with rape so a call comes in from basically saying that like they find that information out but also a call comes in from people in Grimsby saying that they saw Maxine Carr out that in town that night so there goes her alibi so obviously you've been caught in a lie so this doesn't look great at all 
So two detectives go round on Friday the 16th of August and they're taken to two separate stations. So Huntley goes to Ely Station and Carr um, went to a different station in Peterborough and they're both interviewed, but the two of them completely stick to the same story. Now, this is going back to like when Ian gets caught in a lie. So when he's obviously being questioned, he starts crying, foaming at the mouth and like drooling because he's getting himself in such a state. And he basically said he got rabies or something. (laughs) Honestly, no idea. But I think that's the thing, like being caught in a lie is horrendous as it is. And it's so difficult, but especially this one. But you can see that he's not good at getting in trouble. So he's obviously just creating the scene to get himself in such a state. And then he said that this accusations made him unwell. Now, they're both released and actually get taken to a hotel room outside Cambridge. But of course, police have like completely bugged this room, but they didn't discuss anything like nothing's heard. Huntley is then taken away to go and stay at his dad's house and his parents completely support him, say like this was absolutely nothing to do with him and Maxine stays in this hotel room. Now the the house, the college and the grounds were completely deep searched and they got Ian's keys and the keys for that hangar, remember the hut I was telling you about that they couldn't get into the shed, Um, it's a hangar, that's what I knew the word was and I couldn't think of it earlier, sorry, they actually find the keys and it was on Huntley's keychain all along. Now, when they search it, they found in a bin underneath a bin bag, like a big barrel under the bin bag, are two partially burned Manchester United tops. Now, how like how have they ended up there? They were obviously dumped there that night and he's obviously then burnt them. But fingerprints on the bin bag on top of them matched Huntley's. So Huntley and Carr are then picked up again and taken away in separate cars. Now, police also found out that Ian's foaming and drooling again. Like, I, I honestly don't know what this is. And Maxine was also really upset. And she obviously now refuses to stop, like, refuses to eat and start, like, basically stop speaking. On the 17th of August, 2002, about 12.30, a gamekeeper named Keith Pryor was basically out searching. And he basically said he could smell something, like, funny. He went and, like, found this smell in a woods and unfortunately found two burnt bodies in a ditch. Now, he calls police and the police are actually there for, like, two days doing forensics. And they were in such a bad way that they eventually had to be ID'd by DNA and they were identified as Holly and Jessica. Now, the police actually get two extensions to keep Maxine and Ian in custody and not charge them while investigating. So Huntley at this point just completely sits in silence, doesn't speak to them, just stares at them. They obviously have so many questions, like obviously the Manchester United tops, like it makes total sense that they were there because where else is he going to dump them while the whole town is like looking for these girls? Um, Now, he is actually sectioned under the Mental Health Act. Um, and he was charged later that afternoon, but he can't go to jail, obviously. They can't go to prison. They actually have to put him somewhere else that I'll get back to later. Now, Maxine actually breaks first out of the two of them and admits she was in Grims- Grimsby and basically not an eligible alibi, but she explains why she did it. She said Ian told her to say this. She's adamant though that he's innocent and that, like, you know, like he-, he was just going to get in trouble for something he didn't do. Now, she said the cleaning was normal and that she was a, quote, good housekeeper. And that's why the house always smelled of bleach, which is weird. She also said she wouldn't lie about murder. She was like, I'd cover up for things, but I wouldn't cover up for the murder of like two girls. Now, police took her through all the evidence and she's like crying, but she obviously still believes him. Now, she's charged later the same day as Huntley for assisting an offender and perverting the course of justice. Now, she is held at Peterborough for four days and appeared at the Crown Court on the 21st of August. And her head is obviously covered by a blanket after the charges are carried out, she seems like completely shocked to find out that she could potentially serve life in prison. And she just doesn't speak. She just like takes all this information and 
um now police have to like rule in the crowd as she's leaving because people are throwing eggs like people are like trying to hit the van that she's in they're screaming at her like she was kept in isolation and protection from other inmates in prison as well she was completely on her own um she was also on suicide watch and was checked every 15 minutes and her anorexia returned and she went days without food to the stage where she was hospitalized after collapsing and had to be tube fed now Huntley's obviously a wee getting observed for like to see what is wrong with him and he has an ensuite room with a tv access to a gym to speak to other patients like yeah he was watched a lot but right now he's not classed as a criminal he's classed as someone that's mentally unwell now going back to actually the girls because this is what this is all about on the 30th of august there's a celebration of life for them with about 2,000 people and a church in ely and everyone had to wear bright colors because so many people wanted to attend this that the funeral's would have been way too packed. Now, I think it's St Andrew's Church was the name and so on, was surrounded by like a wall of flowers, basically. And they each had a small private funeral and burial. Now, on the 8th of October, Huntley is found fit to stand trial. He's not suffering from any major illnesses. They've ruled out schizophrenia, bipolar, etc. So he is fit to stand trial. So obviously now he is booted out of there and put in a normal custodial prison. And he goes to Woodhall Prison, but he is also kept in isolation. Um, for his own safety they said the only mental illness he had was mild difficulty in concentration when anxious i feel that's a very common thing for people to have but yeah i was gonna say it's not much no yeah so both huntley and maxine also make suicide attempts so in may maxine slits her own wrist but obviously survives this and ian stockpiled amitriptyline and secretly took an overdose he was found in a coma and he'd also tried to hang himself, but he obviously survives this and has moved to Belmarsh near London. Now, they wrote to each other every day, sometimes more than once a day. There were some days it was up to four letters a day to each other. However, on the 10th of December, Maxine just says she no longer wants to accept mail from Huntley and completely cuts him off. Now, as you can imagine, like he is absolutely devastated by this. Like She just basically cuts him off completely. So now the trial starts which is the 16th of April at the Old Bailey. Now, they both appear for their pre-trial hearings, but of course this is rammed with press and the families of the girls, etc., have travelled for this. And they appeared alongside each other, but like Maxine didn't even look at him, and they both entered pleas of not guilty. Now, they both made appeals that they couldn't have a fair trial due to the press. So they had this appeal, basically, and London was chosen as a venue for the appeal um, due to the public and their own community, like communities knowing so much that they were like a jury would already have a preconcepted idea of what they'd done. But both these appeals are denied. Now, Huntley's counsel on the 29th of October told the court that basically Ian's like confessed almost. He says that the girls went to his house, they went upstairs and Holly died accidentally. Then he accidentally killed Jessica. I have no idea. Accidentally. What, yeah, I've got absolutely no idea what this means, like how he could have acted accident I, I don't know I really don't know what he means by that he just said accidentally he said he obviously didn't know what to do like it, he, he said he left and done everything with it I'll tell you all about that in a bit but now he's admitted it it's basically the trial is like okay he said he's done the crime but it's based on his state of mind at the time so on the 5th of November 2003 the official case starts and the jury is made up of seven women and five men now the prosecution are basically saying that Ian manipulated the girls to get them in, maybe said Maxine was inside, he got them in and then he attacked and killed them. Now, due to their injuries, they're thinking maybe strangulation, but nobody knows because there's no obvious signs because of how badly burnt the girls were. 
They're saying he then bathed the girls, got the like marks of DNA off, redressed them, and then cleaned his house. He then drove during the night to dump the bodies, passed like no cars, etc. That night when he got home, he then took the dog a walk to establish an alibi. So like people saw him. Like when he was walking, he spoke to searchers. He also spoke to Sharon Chapman, one of the mums, after he's just dumped the bodies. He told them like he'd searched the college grounds, couldn't find them. And on the Wednesday after he gave his DNA, he was so worried that he might have left DNA on the body. So that's when he goes back to the ditch and takes like a petrol canister from the school and burns them because he's so worried that his DNA would be found on the body. Now, Maxine actually takes to the stand and admitted that she lied. She thought that she was doing the right thing. She kind of spoke badly against Huntley. She said that she admitted he was controlling, but didn't say he was violent. So said that he had controlling like kind of domestic behaviours, but not physically domestic. She mentioned the crack in the bathtub as well. Um, when she came back from holidays, there was well, in, in Grimsby, sorry, there was a crack in the bathtub. And what they believe has happened is he dropped one of the girls while like washing them, basically. She said that when she had got back as well, there was loads of washing had been done, loads of cleaning had been done. But she didn't want to question this due to the tempers that Huntley can have. Now, the prosecution accused her of exaggerating the abuse, but she obviously cries and says she wouldn't be blamed for what that thing in the box had done. So that's what she basically called him and denied knowing at all any of this. Now, Huntley is found guilty on two charges of murder and Carr is found guilty of perverting the course of justice, but found non-guilty on conspiring or like assisting an offender. Now, Huntley got two life sentences and Maxine got three and a half years. Now, Carr appealed the severity of her sentence and got transferred to Forston Hall and she applied for early release if she wore a tag. But of course, this causes a complete public uproar. So the Home Secretary actually blocked the application for this. So she's not allowed out early at all. Maxine was released from prison. I think she served about 20 odd months, including served time. So she gets out in May 2004, but she actually gets a new ID and changes her appearance. Like she gets help changing her appearance and press are actually not allowed to name her or look for her at all. So she's started a new family and, and it cost about £2 million of taxpayers' money just to drop that in. But she is like one of those, like um, the two boys that murdered... Um, Jamie Bulger. I know who, complete, that's yeah, the one. She's got a complete new identity and is out living her life like this never happened, basically. Huntley is currently still in prison in Wigfield and he is at risk of attack. He has apologised to the families now and he has said he will never seek release due to respect for the families. Now, the Chapman family have never made any public statements at all. The Wells have taken part in documentaries and Kevin Wells actually wrote a book called Goodbye, Dearest Holly, which is brilliant. It's so, so sad but I would really recommend reading it. It's where, like, I've read it before and it is honestly really, really good. Really, really sad. And he actually got more involved in, like, the vetting procedures for people. Because obviously one of the main questions I had, which you've already asked in this case, Samantha, is how could Huntley work with kids? Like, and the answer basically is he was never convicted of anything. He'd faced charges, but the charges had been dropped. So a couple of years after this, well, kind of when this is all going on, December 2013, Liar, December 2003, um, the, Bit the Bitchard Report or Bitchard Inquiry, I don't know if you've heard of this, is based on a public inquiry into child protection. And this is produced after the media attention around the SOA murders. So the inquiry is launched on the 18th of December, um, the day after the Old Bailey found Huntley guilty. And they basically, what they look into, Michael Bitchard is the one that uh, chairs inquiry, 
And he says there should be a system where anyone working with children should be vetted before working with them. Now, this report was published in 2004 and it connects a lot to the Solon murders. But it basically says the key reconsiderations were a registration scheme for all wishing to work with children and vulnerable people, an introduction of the National Police Intelligence System for England and Wales, a clear code of practice for all police forces for record keeping and sharing data, training for head teachers and governors on how to interview, ensuring that people are employed according to safeguarding rules and a guidance for social services. And then the main thing that's come from the Richard Report is CRB checks, making it possible to check people for each previous schemes. And this is then developed in Scotland, Samantha, as the PVG scheme. Which we've Samantha, all got. Well, yeah, which Samantha and I are both PVG'd and it's basically to work with children or vulnerable people. So if anything like this had been around, Huntley wouldn't have been able to work where he worked and probably would never have met the girls because, yes, he was never found guilty of anything, but he had charges against him that were then dropped, but they would be put on this, you know, database thing. So when he'd gone, he would have been declined for PVG or it would have flagged up when the college hired him. Now, Holly and Jessica would actually be nearly 30 years old now, which is crazy because I feel like this case, I remember, like, I was so young at the time that happened. I was only like seven six seven but it's one of them that I've always just known um which they had such a small life but it's good to see that this kind of came out of it to prevent things like that happening again so that is the case of Holly and Jessica before I go on to check if Samantha is there anything you would like to add no I thought like there was some stuff in that you said in this that I hadn't known um but it's just crazy and I can't believe that it took all of that for a PG, P, mm-hmm. PVG scheme to come out. I honestly thought, oh, this must have been going on for years and years. I, the 2000s was when people started to get vetted for jobs. Yeah, that yeah. Is, that's awful. Absolutely mm-hmm. awful. Mm-hmm. It was mad. I thought it was something that had been going around for a lot, lot longer. Mm-hmm. But no. But um, no, that was a good one, but obviously not you. a good one. No, I get the story, mean. but yeah. Yeah, I get what you mean. Just before I finish up, because I think this has been a longer episode, so you're probably all fed up with me. I'm just going to give you a wee recap on the Sheku Bayo case, which, of course, we all know Sheku Bayo died in police custody. Following reports, he was carrying a knife on Hayfield Road in Kirkcaldy in May 2015. Now, there is loads of things happening every single day. So as much as I can give you an update, it's only going to be kind of fortnightly. So I really urge people to just google everyday shaky by updates and actually keep on top of it because this is such an important thing that's happening but i just kind of wanted to go over some main points that have really stuck out for me in the last couple of days so as i'd said there reports he was carrying a knife there was actually no knife found on sheku which i think we'd spoke about but this is it kind of come out in this appeal as well that there is no knife found on him there is one found in the grass but there's never a knife on him so all this happened to him him getting taken to the ground six officers on top of him etc when actually he had no weapon on him so I think that's all just yeah so also there was spoke about as well the six police officers restrained him and had a baton towards his throat moments before he stopped breathing now a witness has come forward Ashley Wise is her name and she said when the man was on the ground I heard him screaming it was a horrible sound it sent chills through me and this was a statement two days after Shekubao died on the 3rd of May and one like she basically said the man kept making these roar noises and shouting something similar to like get off me so obviously he was in pain we're aware of that now I also want to recap one more thing I think 
Um, no, two more things, sorry. The police officer who was allegedly stamped on, do you remember the girl, um, the PC Nicole Short, she fell to the ground and they said that he stomped on her, he kicked her, etc. Um, she had no obvious significant injuries, according to the, doc- the three doctors who examined her. They said that there was no injuries at all um, on her. But if you've been stamped on and kicked by a huge man, because remember, Nicole was tiny. She I was, yeah, I was going to say, was she not like five foot? Yeah, but she has absolutely no injuries. But they're saying that's why they restrained him, because he stomped on her, etc. Also, an officer involved the last bit um, has admitted that the police fired CS spray and pepper sprayed him without warning, even though he made no direct threat and didn't show any weapons. So the minute he came over, they started, they pepper sprayed him. Without telling him they were going to pepper spray him, without threatening to pepper spray him, they just did it, even though he made no direct threat towards them and didn't show any weapons at all. Wow. Yeah. So there's a lot coming out about this. Um, A lot, a lot, a lot. And I think it is really it's really difficult because there is so much coming out every single day so I really really urge you to please have a look at the things that are going on here because it's just crazy like they're even talking about one of the policemen that lay on top of him was like over 20 stone and all this stuff so please keep up to date with it if you can because there's so much information and I think me filling in every two weeks is not enough so yeah but any questions if you're I mean we can't probably explain it but if you're a bit confused about things I was going to be like, ask us, but we don't know. Yeah, um, I was like, I'll be like, I'm sorry, I don't know. Yeah, I'll wait for Caitlin to reply. Um, but yes, there we go. So that's all the updates I have. 